0: That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash judging Megan to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince dot com slash judging Megan. And now back to the podcast. Well hello everybody. You are listening to Judging Megan with your host Megan Judge. I am going to start today. I'm so excited about my guest. I've already chatted with her prior. We've had some some a little, couple bumps in the road getting getting together to be able to record, but I'm so looking forward to this episode and for my listeners to hear her. I'm going to introduce her in a second, but I'm going to start out by telling you um as a mother there is nothing, and I might even bring in Candy because she's a mom herself, worse than when your kid has the stomach bug. Last night, my daughter woke up on top of me already being sick for days, woke up throwing up. And as a parent, there's nothing worse than when your kid calls you and says, mom, I just threw up. It's like, the it's the worst it's the worst thing ever. Candy, do you agree? I have to just ask you this. You're, you're a mom. You ugh, ugh. Right? I
1: mean, you know, the old joke was I'll take a, you know, cat hairball any day. Um, <laughs> instead of your kid being, well, in either direction. I mean, you know, food poisoning uh, or the other end. I mean. Oh, it's, it's,
0: like, it's the worst. Well, you can't and- keep up with it. Well, thank God now they have, what is that medicine that they have? There's a medicine that you can give. So they're not, you know, when you get the stomach bug and you're so sick that you're just gagging. I forget what it's called. Makes you you stop throwing up. Yeah, right. So so let me just tell you. So my husband, who I was in a fight with last night before this happened, because that's what happens sometimes when we're married. um, He, (laughs) (laughs) he, he, last time she was sick, she had a stomach bug like a month and a half ago. And I had to whip be up all night cleaning it up. And it was so gross, but they never, when they're little can make the toilet and Ella's just nine. So they, she just threw up over her, all over her bed, like multiple times. And i feel so guilty because I sat in my room and I just, lock the door is am I I'm the worst I'm so bad but I was like it's your turn it's your turn yeah.
1: <laughs> well changing poop diapers and um right kids throw up you know
0: that's the top uh, two
1: yeah and you top know two. my son used to get car sick and we'd go down one of the canyons here in Los Angeles yeah like Laurel Canyon or something and he'd go mmm. And I mean, I'd say, and you know, you know, I need a little warning. I don't need one day. And so I, you know, I'm having like strap, you know, like a grocery store bag over his ears <laughs> and just go when we get down or we'll do something about it.
0: I, well, because there it's all over your car. My older well, there's one, there's no way to,
1: there's no way to like park and move over. No,
0: you like, cannot on our canyons. If you live in Los Angeles, you know what we're talking about. It's, there's nowhere to go there's nowhere to go. You can't pull
1: over. And you know, it's like, and then you have to roll the window down, put your head out the window. Then it goes outside of the car. No, it's not a good thing.
0: It's not fun. So I feel like my husband should get a medal, even though I'm mad at him and I'm, I'm still mad at him from last night. I should probably be nicer because, um, he should, he really did do a good job last night, but I was like, it's your turn. It's your turn. And I just went back in my room and got in bed. I feel so bad, but that's, well, that's how I, I,
1: think I feel that bad.
0: I don't um, really feel that well, bad.
1: Probably once in a marriage, they'll do it. Um, yeah.
0: so, you know, you, you have your, wife. I ha I happen to have a husband that thankfully I'll give him this. He's very good with that kind of stuff. I know that I have friends that their husbands do. Oh no, my, do.
1: my husband, I just lost my husband. I
0: know you told me, but
1: it, you know, he would gag right along with him. So it wasn't, yeah. it, it wasn't, you know, and they'd hold his nose and, and carry on. So I'd go, I'm not, I don't want you sick too, you know?
0: Yeah. Cause then it goes through the whole house. So I'm just yeah. praying to baby Jesus right now. I know please. Him. Please do not let me, all of us, get the stomach bug. I just, I'm literally at my wits end right now. So I'm going to start out the podcast with that little story. We've all been put here for a reason, and we all deserve acceptance. Judging Megan with Megan Judge. I'm a trauma survivor from a really young age, and I have been diagnosed with complex PTSD in the past few years. I've been surrounded by death and abuse much of my life. I've been dragged through the mud. And i have been to the point of not wanting to go on anymore. Through my interviews with other survivors, I've learned that there is a way out from recovering to surviving and thriving. We all have the strength to come out the other side. You are listening to Judging Megan. I'm going to introduce you all to Candy Finnegan. Candy is best known from A and E's Intervention. So, welcome Candy to my podcast. I am so honored to have you.
1: I'm so honored to be here.
0: So let me let me just start with this. I um I watched Intervention and any one of my listeners or audience that might be listening right now it's still airing it's been airing for years and years. It is a show that I mean I can say Candy has saved many 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 lives and um addiction is just so painful in our country you know the suicide rates are higher than they've ever been the suicide rates in children are higher than they've ever been i talk a lot about the homeless issue the mental health issue that's why i do this every week because we are in a, a mental health crisis mental health is obviously walks hand in hand with addiction my 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 older sister I don't know if I told you this candy lost one of her very best friends. She did everything she could. And our friend, Denise Klein, who's a saint, um, ended up, you know, just out of like the kindness of her heart, trying to help my sister and her her friend get clean, get into, get into a sober facility. He went into rehab. He could not, he couldn't do it. And he he passed away last month and my sister, Michelle, did everything to try and save him. And I know that if you wa- have watched Intervention, it's very painful for people to watch. It's not an easy show for people to watch, but addiction is at the highest rate and crisis that we've ever had in the United States. Am I correct on that?
1: Well, absolutely because of uh, these um because of the way that drugs are getting in. I mean, when fentanyl mm. started coming in um through China, it was in little dibbles and dabbles, I mean, like you know, a pound here, a pound there. It's dirt cheap to produce, so cheap. And um, so it was like nobody knew why people were like taking a snort of it, um, smoking it, whatever they were doing, and bam, they were gone. Yeah. And then you started having accidents like a police officer coming into a house and busting them and picking something up with their bare hand. It was absorbed to the skin, they were dead in 10 minutes. So it was a drug we'd never seen, although fentanyl is produced in the United States under very high clinical and it is the only drug that has five separate means of um you taking it there's a patch there's no spray there's um a a sucker there's like a little you know sea sucker (laughs) and then there's IV and um then there's a pill form. No other drug has all of those means. It is a end of life drug. Um, it was mainly given in hospice because so many people had allergic reaction to morphine, and you built up such a tolerance to morphine in like tiny space that it was more and more and more, which eventually just a little bit more and it was gone. So, in that sense, when this father and son team started producing it in China and getting it in. You know, there was an occasional overdose. But when the cartel got involved, I uh, heroin addiction is down 65%. Okay. Because people are just getting hooked on fentanyl.
0: So the thing is, cause I've done episodes about fentanyl and a, a friend of mine who came on the podcast lost her son cause they're targeting young kids on Snapchat. And, you know, he went and bought a Xanax online. That's exactly and,
1: what happened to my daughter's yeah. friend. She yeah. had never taken a pill ever. She was dead.
0: So is it so? What's confusing, I think, as a parent, because the schools, thank God, are finally waking up. So that's why I'm wondering, and and go going backwards a little bit. The crisis is higher than ever because the fentanyl is so cheap to make. The cartel has its hands on it. They're targeting young kids. Narcan, wh- wh- which we're just hearing over the past week is going to be, I was, hope,
1: it, yeah, I've accessible
0: been, uh, over just walking into a drugstore.
1: I've been a Narcan carrier for at least five years. I met this wonderful woman who I hope someday you'll interview. Her name is Amy Dunkel. And she's in Orange County. And she was picking up her son from treatment. And his best friend got there first. And he died instantly because he'd been claimed to. And so she started this, uh, the Solace um, Foundation, and she goes down every Saturday to the homeless and hands it out and teaches them. She's saved probably a couple thousand lives since her son died, Ben. And I met her at a conference, and then I just became attached to her. I had her come do everything I did. It's a 10-minute learning. She has a carte blanche through the Narcan company, and she'll send it to you. I, I you know... I, my kids are, 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 you know, in their early 40s, and I make them carry it. I, I mean, I just don't know who you could look out in the street and see somebody, you know, gone. I
0: it's, mean, it's it's terrifying. What it's, it's a terrifying, scary, scary drug. And I think the more education that, you know, the schools, parents.
1: Well, the, the schools didn't even, weren't allowed to have it on campus.
0: Well, now I, from what I understand they are are now, like my my kids actually go to a, to a Catholic school and they're even starting to talk about and have talks about it, which is, you know, I was kind of shocked by that, but this is like going backwards. This is a huge crisis in our country. People need to wake up, you know, you hear about these stories every single day. Um, But I, I I just
1: started like putting it in cocaine. Yeah. Because I've had a friend whose wife had not gotten high for a really long time. She's under a real pressure television job. She had to have a deadline. She called an old friend of hers. He brought it over. She, you know, did two lines of it and was dead in five seconds.
0: Well, it's shocking to me that are that adult, first of all, adults, you know, parents like are still even touching the stuff. But that's me just being very Pollyanna. I mean, I'm scared to even take too many Advil in a day. So,
1: well, You, like, know. you know, it's funny because I, you know, I, there was such an abuse with Vicodin for so long. And, yeah. you know, I did interventions on two or three different people, like two or three different times. They were taking like 35, 45 Vicodin a day. And so because of the acetabedamin in it, which is 350 milligrams, you take, you know, 15 of them, you're only supposed to have 1500 milligrams of a set of vitamin a day. And here you are, you're now up to like 12,000.
0: How are so- these people even walking around? Like, that's what I don't understand. But I want to, I want to, I am I want to talk more about this, but I want to hear about you because I, you know, it's weird in life how people, you could watch a TV show or meet somebody, and people come into your lives for different reasons. But you, for some reason, I will not—I have not watched the show to be honest in several years. But you, I could tell that you were a firecracker when I would watch the show. Like you're like no mess around. But you yourself—I don't know if people know this—that watch the the show are 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 clean, right? You're sober. Yeah, I'm thirty six. And I would love to kind of start out and hear about you because that's what i I wanted you to come on to talk about. so let let me hear about like where you're from and kind of your early life. And we'll move on well from-
1: I, uh,
0: I'm adopted.
1: And um, I was adopted um, strangely enough, strange story. but um, um I am from Kansas. And uh, yes, I know. Dorothy and those guys, I probably dated them all, those <laughs> scarecrows and all those good things. Um, And, um, you know, I was adopted into a very privileged family, which was, you know, nothing could be better, I guess, you know, I had everything and everything in every color. And uh, my parents had lost a biological child to polio. It was in the 40s, and there was a rampant epidemic of polio, and uh, they lost their only biological child. And they flew in iron lungs and I mean, they did everything possible, but she had polio and it usually suffocates you within two weeks. She was uh, seven. So then a year later they adopted my brother and then two years later they adopted me. So I, I had this thing about being a replacement child. It was my imagination. They never said, oh, there's our replacement daughter. Um, But um, because losing a child um, and when you can't save them, um, it's very different than overdosing. It's a disease that we knew nothing about. And my family and my grandparents put in hundreds of thousands of dollars to Salk to get the polio vaccine up and ready. So um, I grew up in a very active um, I always jokingly said my mother did lunch and my dad did golf, but there was a little more to it. Than that. Yeah, <laughs> so my mother was um, who's who in society and I mean all the stuff that if you look at me now you go you are a debutante, <laughs> but you know I uh, I did the best I could to fit in. And I'm a chameleon, so I, wherever, we had houses in Colorado, an apartment in New York, you know. And I just went, oh, and that's this outfit, and that'll be here, I'll be, Oakley Annie. So I fit in really well, which came in such good play when I was an alcoholic.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I went to a girls' convent Catholic school, was very close with Mother Superior, spent a lot of time with her because I smoked in my uniform oh no uh, it, it was a wool uniform I smelled like a little smudge pot you know just which you know but I am um, I like smoking so I thought don't tell me what to do you know one of those and um I got along really well with her I, I actually became very close with her she was also a redhead I just couldn't tell because she had to have it on um but uh and I, I can tell you that I guess I got an education. I mean I don't I mean, I got most outstanding senior girl because my parents uh, uh, got five new um TVs for the convent and a new lawn. So I mean, how do you not win with that? So what I couldn't <laughs> do, they supplemented, let me put it that way. So I went to a girls' finishing school in Columbia, Missouri, called Stevens.
0: And in two weeks, I know Stevens. That's so funny because my, one of my very best friends, her sister went to Stevens and she's from Columbia, Missouri too. Yeah. I'm very funny. And I was,
1: I was uh, finished in two weeks. Uh-oh. I uh, didn't want to go with any more women. They didn't tell me you couldn't have a car, but you could have a plane and a horse. Of well, course my plane, you know, you need to tell me these things. So I just called my dad and I said, I'll be on the curb. I had trunks full of, you know, that I'd gone to college with. It, and it was, what was I finishing? My God, I knew what fork to use. I'd been, traveled extensively and now you're going to finish me. I never got the concept um, of a girl's finishing. But I'm I? Like, you know, and I thought I'm out of here. So well, just
0: said, to, just to make you, let you know, I went to all girls catholic school and i also went to all girls boarding school so well, this was
1: a boarding school yeah i, I know
0: so i can relate thir- sunday
1: through thursday and if you lived in the vicinity you could go
0: home yep yep i i can relate to everything you're saying it's pretty and funny I mean,
1: there, i'm not going to get into there were ghosts there and the
0: rattling we had ghosts in ours too lisa and again, rattling was our ghost of the beads and not going kind to
1: of do that
0: yeah 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 uh, But I love, I love, I can, and I can relate to the, I know this is shocking to my listeners, but I was, a, I was a little bit of a troublemaker myself in, in high school and got caught smoking also and sneaking off campus. So we have Um, that in common.
1: I I don't know where you're from, but I'm from Wichita and there's no place to sneak.
0: Well, I'm from Potomac, Maryland, which is oh, outside is. of D.C., oh, but, yeah, but my boarding school was in rural Maryland, the rural so Maryland. there was nowhere to go. Yeah, I mean, it's like horse me. country. Yeah, but we well, still snuck out.
1: You were lucky to have a horse. Um,
0: I didn't have a horse, but it was horse country, and we yeah, r- I, I did, did ride exactly. in boarding school. Yeah, I should have taken a horse, to be honest, to sneak That's out. That's right.
1: That's, you know, I had yeah. a horse, and I didn't take it because I didn't know I could. Um, <laughs> So I left there after two weeks and ended up, I guess as a punishment, they sent me to Kansas University. As you could well see behind me, I have Jayhawk, um, Jayhawk the world. Um, And the second day I was there, I met this really cute guy. He was an All-American basketball player and he was from Ohio and he was two years older than I was. And um, he was a Jayhawk All-American. So um, basketball, you know, they're almost number one in the country right now. So, you know, it was quite a prestigious thing. And I said, I'll take him. And um, four years later, we got married. And uh, um, I was married fifty-one years. So um, people say, you know, can't go to college and find a husband. I go, well, maybe. Um, <laughs> I uh, I changed. Oh, I changed majors constantly. My father was so irritated at me. Um, because if I was at college at Lawrence, then I didn't have to act nice. And I mean, most people didn't know who I was. And so I didn't have to be the rich grown down. So I, um, I ended up being a dental hygienist because I'd been to the dentist two days earlier. and My dad said, this is it. What are you going to do? And it was in the sixties. So, you know, women were starting to come into their own and they needed a career and trust me, I didn't know how to cook or I guess I could make a bed and gone to camp. But I mean, I was useless. So, um, you know, and I, I I, thought as a dental hygienist, I mean, I never had any idea. And I actually paid a girl that looked very similar to me, what she had red hair. Um, and she went to a lot of my classes. She made a lot of money in uh, a semester <laughs> um, making believe she was me. So when I graduated and I had the first two rows of my family, <laughs> the dean of the school went, and who are you?
0: Oh my God! Like,
1: have I ever seen you lady? And I went, shh. <laughs> you know, um, and so if you're going to be a hygienist, you really need to have some tools and I like cleaning. And so I did head start for a year and it's because, you know, I could kind of be hung over and give those kids that little red tablet and they'd chew it up and it'd show they never brush their teeth. So I mean, I always found a way out of it, Mm -hmm. Um, which was something I was very proud of. I got married in 1969 and a huge, huge wedding. And uh, um, six weeks later, my husband got an amazing job offer in San Francisco. I went from Wichita, Kansas to San Francisco. And... um, Thought I'd probably have to get divorced. I was very used to the country club way of living and uh, arrived there. And he was very clean cut. And, uh, you know, he'd given up his scholarship to um, play music. I thought he'll grow out of it. And um, he didn't grow out of it. (laughs) He did it for 54 years. So um, here I am in Marin County. It's 1970. January, been married two months, Um, never spent a night alone in a house by myself, and he's going out on tour? I don't think so. So I would fly back to Wichita and he was there, and, you know, it's like I've never seen anybody hitchhike. I thought, how do all of these people have their car breakdown at the same time? And um, I mean, it was like
0: bizarre. Like a whole new world. Well, yeah and to. i'd yeah.
1: Smoke weed but i you know i felt so bad for them that they didn't have seeds in that weed you know i'd go you you know i was smoking hemp i wasn't smoking marijuana
0: yeah
1: it's made of rope and biggest distributor was in kansas during the war so i was uh, yeah you know and people are making dresses out of their bedspread the whole mm-hmm. county smelled like patchouli and i kind of thought it was like body odor you know and i'm because i'm like a chanel girl so yeah. I just thought, get me out of here. You know, my shoes and purse match. I was just crazed. And I don't think I ever saw the extremeness of who I was <laughs> until I ended up there. Um, didn't fit in. Didn't want to fit in. And the music my husband was playing was very eclectic. And do you know who Shel Silverstein is? Of
0: course I do. My husband. Yes. One of my favorite books as a kid.
1: My husband was playing with him.
0: Oh, where the sidewalk ends. I love that um, book.
1: Yeah. He was playing side gigs with him and he was having an article on playboy and a fiddle player with a, you know, garter belt was had her foot up on my husband's, you know, piano bench. It wasn't things I was used to. Yeah. And
0: yeah. I, mean,
1: I, I, at that point, didn't even know who Shel Storstein was um, because the book had not been published when I was a child and, it was lovely, but I was just like such a snob. I I can't. mean, I looked down on them because I was so uncomfortable. I mean, the first time I realized women weren't wearing brasiers, I called my mother. And I thought, oh, God, you're not going to believe this, you know. Um, so I didn't fit in at all. And um, nor could I figure out how to. Some were, so, oh, you were talking about astrology. I had no idea no idea what sign my husband and I were. And we were both Taurus with Aries Rising. And when I heard it, they went, oh, this will never last. (laughs) I mean, now I've got somebody telling me my marriage is going to last. I've been married like six months, you know, because I'm a bull. It was just like from a foreign land. And uh, so he got another big job. He played with the likes of all of them. I'm not name dropping to you, but it was like, you know, it was with uh, a big brother when Janice, died. he played with Jimi Hendrix. Um, You know, it's like, and all these people are dying, <laughs> you know? And uh, I, you know, I can't, t- I can't tell you I got involved in drugs because I didn't, you know, I'm the girl that never took acid, but twirled around and act like I did. Yeah. I mean, I just needed so desperately to fit in. So we moved to L.A. in 1975, five hellacious years in Renn County. And it's so funny because my son lives there now. And uh, it's very different, thank God. But I, you know, I thought, you know, the wheel keeps turning. Uh, So we moved down here. And on the way down, my husband was six foot seven. I bought a Carmen gear because I was supposed to have a Volkswagen. I forgot to put him in it, so it was a little squashed. But, you on know, down we came and I thought I'm going to fit in no matter what. And I never did. I mean, there weren't a lot of people in our situation that were married. I was um, 23 and he was uh, 25. And, you know, everybody else was sex, drugs, and rock and roll,
0: you know. Yeah, that was the time.
1: And I wasn't, he wasn't allowed to introduce me. as His wife, he had to introduce me as this old lady. I, I was incensed by all of it. And so... Yeah. Um, you know, I made the best of it when we moved down here and um, he was, he just kept playing with bigger and bigger and bigger people to me. And in 1977, he started playing with Crosby, Stills and Nash and he was with them for 28 years. And so, I would never heard of them. <laughs> I thought, teacher, children, what? And I mean, I, <laughs> you know, and, and I'm still very close friends with Stephen and uh see him a lot and we were we stayed very closely connected and he played with a lot of other people he was with Monty Raitt for seven years and Joe Cocker I mean he's had a wonderful career I kind of was never impressed with any of them because it was his job to me you know yeah we had no studio in our house he played Hammond B3 we had a piano in our house but I mean when he walked in the door he better just been in Ohio (laughs) because I wasn't going to put up with the hey dude and all that what kids went to private school catholics and um so you know I never really fit in and I thought it was because that hole in my soul was from adoption yeah and um and funny that um I in 1986 um My mother-in-law came out. Um, I'd lost my father-in-law very suddenly to a massive coronary. And um, my mother-in-law came out to spend Easter in the spring with us. And uh, um, she caught me. I mean, that's just all. I started drinking after my son was born in 1981. My daughter was born in 77. So I was like trying to be a PTA mom and, you know, always a room mother. Fabulous parties.
0: So you, so you were you going back a little bit and talking about the piece of the adoption piece, which it which makes you feel like this hole in your heart that you're well, never wasn't gonna... in my
1: heart because I knew I was loved. It was
0: yeah.
1: a my soul. About um, Kansas was one of Kansas and New Jersey were the two last states that had open adoption,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so. You know, I drove my mother crazy um, when I was small and I would go, my mother had a thing about buying eight pairs of shoes and she'd wear them around the house and see which ones were comfortable and send the other one's back. So I got this thing about if I'm not comfortable with her, then she'll send me back. Um, Like three, four years old.
0: Major abandonment issues.
1: Well- attachment you know like
0: attachment yeah you're
1: always get rid of what you didn't want or didn't fit you know
0: yeah
1: and my dad bless his soul my god he was such a wonderful man he made me adopt everything if i had a puppy we adopted if i had a horse we adopted if i had a dog we adopted it and and there were a lot of kids it was like after world war II, and there were a lot of kids that were adopted oddly enough there are a lot of kids in twelve-step programs that are too so um my mother turned to me one afternoon, I mean, I can t- tell you what I had on, I had little shorts, little red shorts on and a t-shirt. And I said something like, well, if you don't like it, you can take me back. And she, it just, it, it infuriated her. So she said, she said, Candy, your birth mother died in a car accident. And so you are ours. We're never taking you back. There's no place for you to go but here. It was kind of like, you better, you know. (laughs) She was a a lovely woman and uh, very, actually very handsome. She had very much Liz Taylor looks. So she would, you know, caught everybody off guard when she walked into a room. And just, you know, the opposite of me the exact opposite of me. And so uh, I said, what does that mean? And she said, she's an angel in heaven and she'll always be watching over you. And so um, it was never talked about again. I never mentioned it again. I mean, I've always known I was adopted but I didn't ever say, okay, to be that. Um, I guess I was 13 or 14 and we saw, my I was with my father and we saw this horrible car accident. And um, I said, oh, that's how my, my, my birth mother died. And he goes, what are you talking about? And I said, well, mom told me, you know, years ago that my mom died in the car, not to bring it up again. And it was so stunned because he was, he couldn't lie if his life depended on He went, oh, well, I guess you forgot to tell me. And I said, well, I don't know, but you know, I, car crashes scare me and all that. And he goes, well, you're, you know, we love you and you're ours anyway. So just get over it. And so I never brought it up again, you know, um, except now I knew it wasn't the truth. Yeah. So it was like, I don't know. It it was, it was an overlay in my life, but it was never a big thing to anybody else. Um, so, um, I guess that after Mike and I got married, and then we moved to Los Angeles and I had my children, and now I've started drinking. Mm-hmm. And um, my mother-in-law was a social worker, the bailiff in the small community outside of Dayton called Troy, Ohio. And she was uh the welfare investigator. I mean, you know, and she was six foot one and very Irish. Her maiden name had been Kelly. So um She said to me, I'm going to take your kids. If you don't get help within 60 days, I'm taking your kids back to Ohio. And I thought, you think you're taking my kids? Are you crazy lady? And so I had a complete fit about it. And um, I said, why aren't you saying something to your son? He drinks more than I do. Because boy, could he hold his liquor. And um, she said, you're raising my grandchildren. And my father-in-law had come from a very alcoholic family. He had seven kids in the family, and five of them were alcoholics. Three of them died, alcoholic. And his father had been an alcoholic in abandonment. So it's like, I just didn't know anything about any of it. My parents, of course, had always dressed up to drink cocktail dresses, and that's what I always wanted, was cocktail dresses and matching dyed shoes at five. So, you know, it was like, it was inbred with me, but I, I never... Thought I knew an alcoholic. There happened to be a did, did
0: you think that you, like, did she catch you? Were you hiding it? Was it something like? I, yeah. Yeah. I
1: um, <clears throat> hid it in the back tank of the toilet.
0: Oh, wow. It so chilled, you were, you were like, really drinking.
1: Well, but not when she wasn't there. Well, I mean, when I was by myself, it was just under the sink. And I usually started drinking about the time I'd bathe the kids.
0: So um, I drink like all day. Yeah. Okay. Um, and where, and were you drinking like wine or?
1: Oh, I started drinking Jameson's. Okay. I'm Irish. And um, then I went to vodka and grapefruit juice. Cause I thought it was giving me vitamin C. I hate grapefruit juice. I can't stand the smell this day. Then um, I, you know, if I was at the Dodger game or something, I'd have a beer. It had to be a certain occasion because when I started drinking, I drank to match my dress, which is quite an accomplishment. and. <laughs> There aren't a lot of black drinks. Um, So I I ended up being a lino. Yeah. I had like, you know, really nice Crystal Waterford glasses and, you know, and I ended up in a park with um, a box of wine in my trunk, you know, (laughs) because it didn't rattle.
0: Claritin-D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. I feel like I've been using Claritin-D for probably a few months now, and I have really noticed a difference. I can work out I'm not feeling like my eyes are watering and my nose is all stuffed up. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear.
2: Use as directed.
0: So let me ask you a question. Don't you think that this is, I mean, all the things you've said, um, first of all, you're a hoot and I think you're hysterical, but um, what what touches me is that you, you've you said, I just wanted to fit in. And, and I think that that's so common, you know, being a mother, being a mom, be, having to do all the things that we do. And be perfect, you know, I grew up as well in that country club lifestyle, I never really from a really young age, I've always struggled with abandonment issues myself, and, um, and, and liking myself, and, and I don't know if you can relate to that. But just, if I don't, and if I and I have openly admitted on my podcast about, you know, that I lean on wine too much and I've taken breaks and done the sober curious thing, but it's because I wanted to feel comfortable in my own own skin. skin. And I think that's so common, especially if you come to a, to a, like, if you're somebody that is feeling uncomfortable, that you just like alcohol is going to take it all away. And then you can be you know, fabulous candy and wearing the dress. Oh, well, they always and-
1: say you're thinner, you're brighter, you're funnier, you're cute. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. funny because when I was in Marin County, I had never seen cocaine. Yeah. And it was becoming more prevalent, you know, and that rock scene was added to your budget when you made an album. And um, I thought, oh, I'm scared to death of this, you know, and it was like, very acceptable at places and big behind, you know uh, backstage and all that. and so i uh, I don't know. maybe I was like twenty eight or twenty nine and I told my I told Mike I said, I'm gonna try cocaine." He goes, "Oh, good, because I'm you know I'm a big talker. The first thing that happened is I took this line of coke, and of course, it was a hundred dollar bill and it was a big huge award show that Mike was playing And I I thought, well, this is magic. It calmed me down. I cleaned my purse and I went to sleep. That's the first thing I knew that, you know, eventually that I was ADHD. I mean, I had no idea that I could multitask like a mother, you know? And so here I am. So the big joke always in that big rock and roll thing was don't give her any. She'll clean her purse and go to sleep. And it wouldn't matter where I was. I could just go up to somebody's bedroom club and go to sleep because, you know, they were partying late into the night and not me. And so I, that saved me, I'm sure, because if it would have brought me more alive or I could have drunk more. Um, but it, I did it like five or six. It was repetitive. I did, it always was the same effect. I never was a pill taker. I was too afraid. I had the Judy Garland thing going on with, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night and you don't know you're taking them and you don't ever wake up again. And um, I'm not a downer. So I, I never did downers. Um they gave me Valium after I had my daughter because I was still on the phone at 3:30 in the morning. <laughs> but, but uh, I mean, I just was never a bill taker. I was just a good old drunk. Yeah. And um, you know, I, I did everything you're not supposed to do as a mother, you know. Um I I made my daughter stay home at school with me because I didn't want to be alone and watch movies and color. Um and I got sober when my kids were three and six. So, uh, you know, they weren't raised by an alcoholic mother. And my my son, uh, he thought it was a lot more fun. He'd go, Mom, maybe you need wine. <laughs> because now they had to go to bed at eight, you know, and it was, everything looked very different. And yeah. my kids went to school in, in fall of 86 and said, when, what did you do for summer? And they went, oh, my parents are alcoholic. I mean, they thought that that meant you didn't drink because they had never heard that word before. And so, uh, yeah, it's been, in a, two months, it'll be 37 years sober. That's astounding to
0: me. Congratulations. I think that too, like everything you're saying is, you know, the alcohol industry is is glamorized. And especially when you when you grew up, when you did, you know, my mom is, is the same around the same age as you. And she would, you know, tell me stories about like drinking a martini. She, my mom wasn't a big drinker, but like, you know, like everything was glamorous when it came to alcohol. And to this day, I mean, hot, hot, like billions, I don't want to say billions, but I can't remember the statistic on how much advertisers spend it is, um, it's is it billion. It's two it dollars. Okay, yes. I wasn't sure on the number because it's like you don't see in these commercials the the reality. Everything's like, oh, we're at a nightclub and we're beautiful and thin and perfect and we're drinking, you know, Ciroc vodka with P Diddy. Like everything is. With everything is. Or yeah, to keep at, with you know. You don't see the reality of what alcohol and and drugs and pills really do to you. It's hidden and it's like a dark secret. It's a dark little secret that's oh, going like to like creep up dirty, on you. Yeah,
1: the dirty little secret. Um. Yeah. You know, so I had 60 days to get sober before my mother-in-law was coming back. I got furious at her. And so on the 61st day, because come on, it's got to be my idea. Um, I went into treatment, and I I called Betty Ford and asked if Ms. Betty would call me. I said I'd like to speak to Betty. It was about 4.30 in the morning. And uh, um, they said, excuse me? She's messing message me now. I said, well, I'll just leave my number. Could she call me? And when she didn't call me, I got just fear. I ended up being friends with Mrs. Ford and I always told her the story and she'd go, Well, if I'd have known it, Candy, I'd called you, you know. (laughs) It's like, and she would have, I'm sure. So, you know, I started in on this journey and I went to a place that was for only 10 days and it wasn't 12 step and got in and got out. And then it was on May 1st of 1986. And my husband uh, um said he was going to treatment on Mother's Day. That was my gift. And um I was 38 years old. And um, you know, somebody came that I didn't know and picked me up that Sunday after I got out of treatment on Saturday and took me to a meeting. And I said, you know, I'm busy, I don't know who you are, I'm not getting call with you anywhere." And uh I walked into the to the uh 12-step uh studio 12, which was a men's recovery house that was the industry, the entertainment industry. Um And, you know, as as I went along and uh, Mike got sober, um, he and David Crosby uh, started uh, being interested in helping other musicians and they started MAP, which was a musician's assistant program, which morphed into Music Cares. So that's really where I started my career was volunteering. Like those guys all got their shit together and they went on tour and, you know, and I would volunteer to go pick up these musicians and take them to treatment and talk to their wives. That's how it it found me. I didn't find it.
0: Don't you think that's so interesting how life like works itself out? You know, like I, I say all the time, be happy by making other people happy. That's how I end every podcast. That's what my dad taught me. And through like pain and things that have happened in our lives, you know, like the trauma of whatever it is, that you can turn your story into like really doing something with your life to help other people. And it's so important. And what you've done is so huge. Which kept me so I wouldn't be yeah.
1: But you know, there's nothing worse than a drunk interventionist. So
0: does that I mean that must exist? I mean, I've, well, well, there are so, certainly I've,
1: interventionists now that aren't. It's been bastardized. It's just very sad to me. You can yeah, go to three day training and be one because there's no licensing in any state in um, the United States of America. You could have a three-day thing and hang a plaque out until you're an interventionist.
0: You're- I have a I have a question about that because I do talk to, I have talked to Denise about this. So when you, when somebody goes to rehab, right? And they and they go to get clean for the 30 days or whatever it is, it's an ongoing process, right? So a lot of people that's, think, oh, I'm going mean, to-
1: that, That's the easiest thing you do is go to rehab.
0: And then, but then there's like, you have to do the work. And a lot of these, rehab facilities well
1: if you say i don't want to go i hate 12-step meetings yeah i like those people you know i actually said about the second month i wouldn't even drink with them and my husband said that you would if they were buying but you know it's like if you don't believe it'll work for you it won't and I think, in the beginning, life was very simple doing my work, but it's very complicated because it's a brain disease. It's not a judgment or a moral issue. And you've got to get help. I mean, um, twelve step is wonderful to keep you from maybe not drinking and helping others and learning a new way to live because we all look different, but we all got the same problem. No matter what we're ingesting, it's still altering who we are. And uh, you know, I, I had only known one person who was in a 12 step when I got sober and um, I didn't like him. I thought he was a pompous ass. And so here I am, you know, and so I stuck around because I didn't know where else to go. And um, I, these people didn't know me. They didn't have an opinion of me. They didn't know I was married to my husband was a, uh, in a men's meeting for four years and everybody thought he was an attorney so um you know you can fool some of the people and they went to a concert and saw him and said oh my god you know yeah so we aren't who we are in AA we need to be either sober or clean or um represent and change our lives so we can help other people so that's what you know being of service and uh, here I am years later still going. I still sponsor girl. I do everything I'm supposed to do to help another who's suffering. And um, what an honor and privilege it, it, you know, you always hear the only thing you have to change is everything. And it's yeah. true.
0: let me ask you, because I, you know, watching the show, none of those people want to get clean. Right. I mean, I, I,
1: well, I don't, I'll tell you that's such a weird story about me getting involved with him, but
0: yeah, um, I would love to know that by the way, how, how um, that happened. I had a phone call Uh was um,
1: 2004 and this guy said to me, well, I had had four or five different offers to do a show or, you know, about addiction and, and um, there'd been a show on PBS called The Family After. And I mean, you know, so it was starting to be much more accepted. And there were a lot of famous people were getting sober and staying sober. And uh, so I got this call and um, said, we want to do a TV show and, and the name it was Intervention. And it's funny because four years earlier, I had done a treatment about a show called intervention and i'd left it with Bart burnett and one other reality guy and um i got an option of it for 350 bucks for three months and i never heard from them again and this show that was being presented to me was my show wow and i i still have a treatment but i thought i'm nobody you know, I got a better chance. I mean, I just, I, I, I didn't ever think it would work. So you're going to go in and you're going to see them getting high and they're going to go to the dealer's house and you know, so I couldn't conceive of how it was going to work. I liked the process, but the man, Sam Mettler, who I adore, um, was going to have it be a comedy. It was, it was kind of a jokey thing. And I said, Oh God, count me out. Absolutely yeah. not crazy and I in 1991 when I went through my training there were only five women interventionists in the country and so you know somebody pounded their fist on the table and said whenever you're here the circus is in town and I said I'm the ringmaster and shut the you know and away I went so um, and I got trained by Dr. Vern Johnson who created this process so I had some wonderful opportunities that I didn't know were opportunities at the time, they were blessings. And so away I went and the show was incredibly authentic. There was just the two of us, there was Jeff Von Vonderant and myself. And then of course it took off the first year. I did um, 26 interventions that year. Um, And it was, you know, they held the camera up in the airport and in the airplane and getting off and going to the hotel. All that was cut out finally, because, you know, that was awful. Mm-hmm. And um, I was be- being paid. I mean, I couldn't belong to a union and I was being paid barely. Twenty dollars an hour because I was gone for three days. Yeah. So it was you know, it was like but it got more authentic and more authentic and it really worked. And I was seeing miracles and. Uh, um, I mean, I'd already been an interventionist, you know, so it's since 92. So, I mean, it was like, this is what I did. Um, and it was a lot of people who could not afford treatment. That's the truth. And uh, by the way, the show does not pay for treatment. They don't pay for anything other than, a, you know, a three-star hotel for us. And they don't pay for clothes. They don't do reruns. And I got a $300 raise a year dinner. And um, I thought, you know, I'm doing this as a a community outreach for addiction, that this is possible. And, you know, I have a million funny stories, but, you know, the pre-intervention lasted three and a half minutes instead of three and a half hours. The crew would get really impatient with me because I took so long educating. And I mean, there were a lot of things that didn't work for me, but... It worked for me enough where I had a shot at having somebody save their own life with the grace of God and the help of the show, you know. Um, But, you know, I got to say at that point on what treatment center they went to. And I mean, I was incredibly involved in all of it. And then as the show got, you know, and then they hired this person then they hired that person. And I knew that they weren't properly trained. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had to have a black woman. So they got done it. I mean, it was just that type of thing. So I, uh, I stuck it out for um, 11 years. Um,
0: do you I, know the statistic on, on the cases that you 60%. saw? 60%. Okay.
1: Um, I, at one point, I think about three years ago, 11 people had died um, on the show and sixty percent, if they didn't stay sober that time around, they got the message, and they you know, but now there's, it's showing this show at uh, in treatment centers. I, it was just it went it got out of hand, really,
0: yeah, it and, just uh, snowballed into like a huge thing
1: well, and then people would I'd say seventy five percent of everybody that watched it was loaded. I get that. I mean, never has anybody said to me. I used to watch your show. Oh, that's good.
0: You know, and, I w- but- I wasn't loaded watching it, but I would watch it. I don't. I. I don't. I think I watched those things because I don't know if I wanted, you wanted to.
1: Wanted to make sure you weren't as bad as they were.
0: Maybe. Maybe I mean, that's, that's, that's a good that's point. Really,
1: yeah, that's the presence of it. And here, my husband had been this tremendously successful intervention. I mean, a musician, and now I'm getting recognized everywhere.
0: Yeah isn't it, that funny so,
1: there's a drug lady you know I, I was stunned because at one point 3.8 million people watched it week. yeah and um so as time would pass i i had some wonderful experiences just magnificent of helping people and their families but i was not allowed to stay in touch with the families after the show which i always do follow up and closure wasn't able to do that and. Uh, Sam left. Sam Metler left, and we got um, a new executive producer. And then um, it'll be. It was four years ago. Four, three, four years ago. um, Last December, I wrote a letter and sent them out. You're not going to compromise my values, and you're not going to make me feel that we are picking the worst possible people to intervene on not caring what the outcome is. And, uh, you know, I was just as happy if they didn't go to treatment because it's real life, you know?
0: It's interesting that you say this too because this is like a common thing. You know, this is TV. So at the end of the day, I don't know if you ever watched that show, The Biggest Loser.
1: Oh, of course,
0: so so
1: they
0: had it was it was a Yeah, so it's a oh it was I didn't know that. These people would come in, you know, 300 pounds whatever it was, lose that weight really quickly and then there's so many cases of these people years later they gained back all the weight and the and it was just like it's almost like we needed you for this one purpose which is to be on TV Share your soul, share your stories of pain, why you got to this size. And then that's it. And it sounds well, so and, familiar. And,
1: with, and they never addressed eating disorders. They yeah. Never addressed if you're 150 pounds overweight, most likely you were sexually abused from between five and eight. Yeah. Um, there was no therapeutic, you know, you still have a fat head and a little tiny body.
0: And, and you a- still have the fat cells. That well, will come so back, exactly. yeah,
1: and they had a really good doctor. He actually was a very excellent doctor. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, they were so busy exercising and starving themselves to death, you know, um there wasn't time for a therapeutic process to bring the family in. And um eating disorders, I did my thesis on them and I gotta tell you, it's the hardest thing because I can live without alcohol for the rest of my life. I, I can't live without food. And um, so, um, and I've worked with a lot of, of uh, eating disorders,
0: uh, and I'm, I'm a recovering bulimic. So I'm yeah, very, so you yeah, understand. very passionate about it. Yeah. And I, and I use that analogy because what you're saying and caring about people, the way that you do just makes so much sense, you know, that this is, it's an industry and and at the end of the day, it's entertainment, you know, w- however it shows up, you know, that's what it is.
1: Well, and, you know, what you have to realize is is this is a lifelong commitment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the 12-step programs and stuff that are associated with eating disorders um, are not a success. Mm -hmm. Because they demand a certain amount of, you know, if you have lima beans instead of green beans. And it's like it it isn't what it was ever set out to be, which is uh, torture. And um, it's uh, called the HOW program.
0: Well, let me let me ask you this, like for the sake of time. Um, I want I I want to touch on, um, the root. I mean, it's so important to talk about the root of why people do what they do, and and you know the pain of trauma from childhood or whatever it is the reason why people turn to alcohol or they turn to drugs. You know, it usually stems from. Having some sort of trauma as a child, um and and that's that is such a huge issue in our country is, you know, we if we don't get to the root of why people have these addiction issues and we just like put them in twelve step programs and then they throw well, them out on the street, what are I your thoughts on that?
1: I don't care who you are. Mm-hmm. If you don't have anything wrong with you other than you might have a hat addiction.
0: Mhm. As I look over your shoulder. No, um, oh, I do have a hat addiction. That's yeah. my hat wall. Wow.
1: And so um, <laughs> you're going to learn a new way of living that is magnificent in 12 steps. So I throwing anybody in 12 step. I mean, I've had people that I sponsored that weren't alcoholics and addicts. They had a traumatic situation in their life and <clears throat> turned to drugs and alcohol, but they never had the behavior. And that's what I trigger. Um Alcohol and drugs are just a symptom of what's really going on with us. Any treatment center that takes you in and starts doing heavy trauma treatment is crazy. You can't do trauma mm. treatment when you're two weeks sober. I mean, it's been eating you alive. So I'm a big, huge fan of a place called The Meadows. It has a week-long program called Survivor, and it's how you survived your childhood. I've done it twice, and it was so, I went as a professional, and then I went back two weeks later, because how dare you call me an orphan, mm-hmm. it, I mean, it, boy, it grabbed hold of me, I've sent probably three or four hundred people there, for many situations, but mainly, our, our, we all have early childhood trauma, but we, it, it, it's it's different, but it feels the same, so when that word trauma came in, I felt like it was kind of like herpes, don't do this, don't get you. Um, or ADHD, or bipolar, I mean, you know, we've gone on these clicky things. I I truly believe that when you get sober, you have to work at staying sober. If you're not going to 12-step to me, then you might be sober, but you're not in recovery. There's a process of being accountable of talking about your feelings, of telling the truth um, that is not accustomed to us. We lie, we cheat, we steal. Um, all of us in one way or the other. And um, I think you have to continue on. I hate programs that put you on a bunch of, you know, drugs, um, antidepressants and just to sleep. And I mean, it's like then they're dependent on something else that's going to make them okay i I know from experience of years and years of watching and trying to help people, we all have a mental malady. This is a mental disease Who gets up every day and tries to kill themselves and says, "No, no, no, I'm fine. You know,
0: for the sake of time, i I wanted to touch on one last thing, because I could talk to you all day. I hope that we were. Oh, yeah, I want to
1: do. I want to do a program on adoption.
0: I would love to do uh, that. Cause that's because, a huge and thing. And I want to connect you. I want to connect you with my friend, Mary, who talks I know, about, Mary.
1: I mean, I know who she is.
0: Okay. Cause she talks a lot about closed adoption and like what it does to a human being and all of that stuff. But I do love to end the show in, in a positive way, always if I can. And and I know that you lost your husband, which I'm so sorry to hear. And what I love what I love about what you said to me is David Crosby just recently passed. Yeah. And I will tell you what's weird is I love the song hero. I listen to it all the time. I listen to it in my car. It's one of my favorite songs. I think it's the most beautiful song. And i and I and what I, what touches my heart is the fact that, that means that your husband and David are connected. I believe in that stuff.
1: Oh yeah, so do I. Yeah. And my husband was very close with Edda James and she's up there and Joe Conkert's up there. I mean- He's got
0: lots of friends.
1: Yeah, he didn't go up there. He's not lonely. And uh, uh, I'm a deep believer that um, his presence will always be with me. I'll never be the same, but I'll be okay. But I have to tell you something, Megan, I've got purpose.
0: You do have purpose. You know,
1: and Mike for years was my higher power before I got sober, as is uh, David's wife, Jan, who I just got a text from 20 minutes ago, um, saying um, the world was blessed to have them in it. And we got to be lucky enough to marry them, you know, the love of our lives. So I'm grateful for a lot of things. I'm pissed at him all the time. When I have to playing the gutters. Um, but um, but you know, the real truth for me is is that he believed in the human race, and he believed that the best thing we could do is love one another. And um, music brought us. it was a universal language. so i I have many benefits from all of that. Um,
2: am I happy? No.
1: um. And the grieving process is very personal. My daughter does it completely different every day. It's got something about her dad and his music. And my son is a very acclaimed musician and um, he brings it out in his music. So we all are still grieving, but I'm a lot better than I was. Trust me. I, I, I was, I understand this grief thing is like, and I lost my mom and my dad and but I'm your
0: friend. You've gone through a lot. Well, oh, I l- lost my loss. best
1: friend of six yeah. years the week before I lost
0: my Yeah. L- l- loss is grief and loss is it can be a lifelong process. Well, but I it, like to say. But but it's yeah. what it's what you can like bring really? to it and remember. And do you have a sign? I'm gonna close on that. What do you have a sign that he's with you? I would love to hear it.
1: Um I, you know, I'm not looking for it yet. Hmm. Um. Uh, I don't want to start going. Oh, there's a white butterfly, and it's you know because he wasn't a white butterfly. Trust me. Me at first, you know what I thought it was quarters. Ah. Oh. I'm getting a car and there'd be a quarter on the floor. I go and I I'd look down and think there was a the quarter and it wasn't there before. But he's worth more than twenty five cents. You know. I mean, it's like it's but it was like just very odd. Um. Uh, and I, I i I had a very hard time listening to his music. He was prolific. He was a fabulous singer, great musician. And I have a hard time listening to it because a lot of times I shared that piece of him. it was it was his. It was all his, and this was all mine. And uh, we shared a life together. but um i'm I'm not looking for but somebody just ask me if I was gonna date. i'm seventy three. I said, yeah. If he's ninety-eight, has six <laughs> weeks to live, a billionaire, and has no kids, and will leave me everything, I'll think about it
0: Oh my God, that's hysterical! Because you know,
1: I, you know, you know, am Are you out of your mind? Um, I, I always have said, you know, I uh, I'll, I'll be okay. You know, do I like it? No. But,
0: but I, you, and you have your purpose, like you talked about, um, Candy when just so you know, when you, when this, you're ready to see signs, cause you're still in the very early process yeah. of this, you'll, you'll, you'll see them and you'll, I believe in that. I believe. Oh, I, I do
1: too. And my mother, it's so funny. Yeah, My mother was about as squared up as you can get high society. And I've always wear pearls. I've worn pearls since I was 12 because it makes you look like a lady. That's what she said to me. Like, I didn't have to act like one of them. I, I love uh, it. So, um, But my mother was a deep believer in reincarnation. So I've always kind of grown up with that, you know? Yeah. Uh, And uh, we'll see, you
0: know. When you're ready, you'll see it. My sign, my sign for my, I've lost my sister and my dad and my best friend and my sign. I always feel like my best friend's super close and it really is butterflies because I really have like had so many crazy experiences with it that they just come to me when I really need them. And and I'm very spiritual. I know that God's with me every day of my life.
1: Oh, I I I, don't.
0: Yeah. So I know know we're going to see them again. And the best thing about you is that you live your life helping other people. And that's what it's about.
1: Did you see the uh, cartoon Soul?
0: No. Watch it. I will. Andy, I adore you. You're the oh, best. I'm so happy. I now I have to meet you and have to come to Manhattan Beach after. Oh my God! Let's have lunch, everyone. In closing, thank you, Candy. You're awesome. I'm so. Thank you, Denise, because she sends me all these angels, and she's my my one of my little she's angels. Yeah, <laughs> she's my agent now. Thank you, Denise. Um, in closing, everyone, be happy by making other people happy. Thank you. Judging Megan with Megan Judge.